Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, we love Burger King Grilled Dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm your host, Daniel Roon, and I'm really excited to have you with us for this episode. We actually have three guests on this one, all of whom have never been on the podcast before, so I'm particularly excited about that. We have Ian Levy of Hickory High and Hardwood Paroxysm, Cameron Schott of Real GM, and Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders. But first up is Ian Levy. He is a founder, editor, and lead writer at hickoryhigh.com, and there's a dash between hickory and high. I get that wrong all the time, even though I go to the site very frequently. And we go all over. He has developed a stat called Expected Points Per Shot, abbreviated XPPS, which I personally love. I think it's a really interesting and nuanced way of interpreting offenses, both in terms of how they execute and in terms of just the choices that they make. And we talk about a lot of different teams, the Pacers, the Rockets, and the general scope of the Eastern and Western Conferences, how they're looking at about the halfway point. I'm really excited for it. It runs a little over 40 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Danny. Pleasure. One of the things I want to start with is you wrote a piece recently about how the Raptors have adjusted after they acquired Rudy Gay, and I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit with our listeners. Yeah, it was a really interesting thing. You know, he had sort of reached a, the point in his career where he had sort of become this poster child for you know, what you'd call it, the, the antithesis of sort of the analytics movement. Everything the analytics movement said was really important. He went the opposite direction. And so people were sort of watching that trade, really interesting to see what would happen to the Raptors. And so when I started digging in, watching some video and looking at the numbers, you know, they had this huge turnaround after the trade. And it was interesting because it was less about removing the bad shots that Rudy Gay was taking and the negative outcomes that he was giving them. And it was 
more about just how it freed things up for everybody else. Their spacing got a lot better. Just the ball movement, the flow of their offense was a lot better. And so it was sort of this, this really interesting knife's edge, you know, where people were wanted to jump on and say it was because Rudy Gay was bad. And, you know, watching him have some success in Sacramento over the past couple of weeks, it's clear that it was not because Rudy Gay was bad. It was because Rudy Gay was not a good fit for what they were trying to do and for the players around him. And some of the things they were asking him to do were not really helpful. And some of the decisions that he was making just weren't a good fit for what the team was trying to do. And it's a nice example of how basketball is a little bit more nuanced than some people give it credit for, that certain teams, and what I'm thinking of with this is the Warriors bench unit, could actually benefit from having a guy like Rudy Gay just because of what he does and because the rest of that unit is so inefficient Mm -hmm. that that could be used. But then what having him off there has done is allowed guys like Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan to really show what they could do with more touches and with, as you said, the spacing is a huge part of that as well. Yeah, it was really interesting when I was watching the video because I I hadn't watched a a ton of Raptors games earlier in the year. I'd seen bits and pieces, quarter here, quarter there. And when I really sat down to watch the video for that piece, it was was just unbelievable to me how many possessions he was just sort of short-circuiting. And even before we get to the point where he's maybe pulling up for a mid-range jump shot that's a questionable decision, Lowry and Amir Johnson would set up to run a pick and roll and they would end up running it right into an extra defender because Gay was trying to post up instead of being spaced out in the corner and little things like that. He didn't seem to be on the same page with with the rest of the guys on the floor. And so, yeah, there was a lot of actions like that where it was just the fit where they needed to have sort of more of an egalitarian system to let guys like Lowry and Johnson and Terrence Ross and DeMar DeRozan shine. And Gay was probably a better fit in a place where maybe like the Warriors bench unit where he's carrying the load and people are playing off of him. And the other part of that is the degree to which these differences have been accentuated because Lowry and DeRozan are now potentially all-star candidates when (laughs) I vehemently believe that they wouldn't have been really considered regardless of their deservingness without the improvement that has come, whether it's because of her, but that coincided with the trade. Yeah, and, you know, some of it has to do with just a weak Eastern Conference. You look up and down the slate, and the Raptors are, you know, the third best team in the conference. So they've got to have some all-stars on the team if if they're that high in the standings. And so, yeah, you look at Lowry, and I don't know if Amir Johnson will get into, but he's really been fantastic for them this year. All year, even when Gay was there, Amir Johnson was just doing everything for them. And now that I'm thinking about it, before we get into more of the nitty-gritty with stuff, I think it'd be a good idea to walk people who are less initiated through expected points per shot called XPPS and how you got to that and what it, what we can learn from it. So XPPS is a, is a metric that I developed last year at Hickory High. And the origination, the idea was I was looking for a way to sort of objectively measure offensive decision making and we'd sort of look around the league and you see these players with a huge variety in the in the different kinds of shots that they take and I, so I was just really curious about you know if I could pick two different players and I could look at them and I could say this guy is taking better shots than this guy so what I did was I was able to calculate the expected point value for shots from different locations and I used the NBA stats database so the different locations are shots that come in the restricted area shots that come in the paint but not in the restricted area everything else inside the three-point line is is considered a mid-range jump shot. And then they split three-pointers into three-pointers from the corner and three-pointers from above the break. I had the expected value of all of the above-the-break three-pointers taken over the last 12 years in the NBA. And so from there, having that expected value for each shot, you can look at all the different shots that a player takes and you can figure out how many points we would expect them to score. You know, if they shot the league average, how many points would we expect them to score uh, given their shot selection? 
and then we can compare that to how many points they actually score, and we can get something called shot-making difference, which really you know illustrates the players who are accurate from where they're shooting from. And one of the really interesting things in terms of how that was generated, and I'm sure for you was a really interesting part of the process, is that the non-restricted area paint expected points and the mid-range points are really not that different in terms of the expectation of points per shot. Yeah, they're almost identical. You know, the mid-range shot has become the most evil thing a player can do is is take a mid-range jump shot, a long two-pointer. But if I remember the numbers right off the top of my head, I think it's 0.88 points per shot on a mid-range jumper, and it's 0.93 for shots in the paint and not at the restricted area. And so they're really, really close. I know one of the things is that those shots in the paint that are not taken in the restricted area, those are taken a lot less often. And probably the nature of those shots reduces the the value of them. So even though you're in the paint, if you're not actually taking it in the restricted area, it means it's probably not a layup. So maybe it's a hook shot or a turnaround or something like that for a post player, or maybe it's a floater or a runner for a guard that's driving to the basket. So, you know, taking a shot in that zone, you're not using your regular jump shot motion and you're probably not close enough to the rim to be dunking it or making a layup so probably the nature of those shots makes them a little bit more difficult and it also makes sense intuitively just watching the way the NBA goes because a lot of times those shots are settling in a way that makes sense coinciding in a way with mid-range shots is that if you can't get all the way in then you're probably getting a shot that was not your primary and if it's not your primary then there might not be as many possible successful opportunities for it as there would be if you let's say got a dunk or a layup or even a quarter three yeah and then there's sort of the thing too the mindset like once you're in the paint you know i imagine that I don't play professional basketball, but I imagine once you're in the paint, you're that close, you know, you can see the basket, it's just an arm's length away. And so it feels like a great shot, regardless of what sort of shooting motion you have to use or how close the defenders are, or, you know, whether Roy Hibbert's in front of you or not. And it's funny because that's something that takes me back to Rudy Gay. You know, he took a lot of really, really difficult shots. You know, a lot of them were close to the basket. They were shots that generally would have been good shots if he hadn't been off balance and with a defender right in his face. And that's a portion of what you call shot making is, you know, making easier shots more difficult or making difficult shots more makeable or even just making difficult shots. I remember Stephen Curry is an interesting example of that as well, from what I recall. Yeah, you know, there's a few players. Curry is one, especially because he takes a lot of above the break three pointers and relatively speaking, their value is a lot lower. So, I, again, I'm pulling these numbers off the top of my head. So I think a shot at, in the restricted area is 1.183 points per shot on average. A corner three pointer is one point one five seven and then and above the break three is 1.048 so that's a pretty significant distance it's about a difference it's about 10 points per hundred shots and so Stephen Curry takes so many above the break three pointers that when we look at his his XPS his expected points per shot it's a little bit lower than some other you know scorers and perimeter players but for him those are good shots he makes them at a you know a ridiculous rate and so that's why it's really important when we're talking about XPPS that we're always looking back at actual points points per shot and that shot making difference. Another great example would be like Dirk Nowitzki or Kevin Garnett, you know, they live on those mid-range jump shots and for them it's a very efficient shot choice. Judging them by the the expected value of that shot across the entire league is not necessarily fair. So their XPPS numbers might look really low cuz they take so many long two-pointers, but when we look at their actual points per shot and that shot making difference, we can see, you know, how their their talent sort of makes up for that. And that also is a good way of illustrating the beauty of professional level basketball players is that guys can develop skill sets that make things that would otherwise be seen as more specious shot selection good by actually being good at it and that you can make those considered weaknesses into strengths in a way. 
Yeah, you know, we looked at the Dallas Mavericks from 2011 when they won the title, and their XPPS that year was not very good. The the bulk of their offense was Jason Terry, J.J. Barea, and Dirk Nowitzki, and all three of those guys just lived in the mid-range, pull-up jump shots, floaters, runners for Barea and Jason Terry. And so they had what we would, in the very abstract, what we would consider not an efficient offensive distribution, but it fit the particular uh, skills and talents of those players. And then the other really important thing is that they had an offensive system that generated open looks. You know, there's a big difference. This is not really captured in XPPS because I don't have a way of measuring defensive attention on a shot, but there's a big difference between a wide open long two-pointer and, you know, a turnaround fall away, you know, with two guys draped on you. And the Mavericks offense was able to create really good open mid-range looks. And for Jason Terry or Dirk Nowitzki, those are the same as layups for somebody else. Could the sports view data possibly start to yield some fruit in terms of how, how we would expect shot efficiencies to change based on the proximity of defenders? I imagine that teams already have that and, and are already working with it. I don't know. It might be a while or potentially never before we ever see that on the public side, which is one of the frustrating things about sports view. I mean, I'm so thankful to the NBA for what they did make public because going into the season, we didn't think we'd see any of it. But there's a whole wealth of information out there that we can't touch. But there's also a company called Vantage Sports. They have sort of a host of tools. They sort of bridge the gap between what SportView does and what Synergy Sports does. So they have some software programs that do some visual tracking, and then they have a lot of really trained, really talented manual loggers who are logging things like defensive attention, proximity between a defender and a shooter, dribbles, things like that. So they have a huge and incredibly detailed database of statistics. Unfortunately, that's not public either. They deal with teams Um, and a few different media outlets, but they have a blog and periodically they'll drop some really interesting research that includes stuff like that. They've actually had a few posts over the past couple months about that specific idea of proximity of a defender, whether the defender's hand is raised or not, and how much of a difference that makes in shooting percentages. It's fascinating. And in terms of offensive XPPS, the extremes, I think, have done an interesting job of illustrating really what shot making means. And so On the biggest disparity on the negative standpoint, it's Cleveland, Milwaukee, and Charlotte, which all makes complete sense Mm -hmm. considering how those teams are run. Yeah. And that's the thing for me. I've had a lot of trouble just more anecdotally watching the Cavs this year because I think you can explain in some ways by that. It's just that they have talent, but it just goes in such a strange direction. Yeah, and, you know, taking it back to that Mavericks example, you know, they have some guys on the team who are good mid-range shooters. Deion Waiters is a good mid-range shooter. Kyrie Irving is a good mid-range shooter. But the mid-range shots that they end up taking are not good shots. You know, so much of that stuff is pull up off the dribble with a defender in their face. And so even within those mid-range shots, there's a range of values, and the ones that they're taking are generally more low value. And one of the other things that's really interesting in looking at the offensive XPPS numbers. And again, this is just kind of anecdotal. I haven't really done any research with this yet. But one of the things that I noticed looking at the past couple years was that the teams that had the really, really potent offenses, the Spurs, the Heat, the Oklahoma City Thunder, generally were not the teams that had the most efficient shot selections. All three of those teams, I think the past two or three years came in right about average on XPPS, which means they're taking a fair number of above the break threes and they're taking a fair number of mid-range jump shots. And so one of the the ideas that I've sort of 
have been playing with is there is a certain number of mid-range jump shots that have to be taken by every team or above the break threes that have to be taken by every team. You simply can't get to the basket on every possession. You simply can't get a shot from the corner or from the free throw line on every possession, even if you have LeBron or Kevin Durant. And so the teams that are really successful are the teams that are able to create good mid-range shots and open mid-range shots and have the right players taking those mid-range shots. Like you look at the Miami Heat, the guys who take those mid-range shots are LeBron and Dwayne Wade. And those are the guys who make them. And you don't see people like Shane Battier and uh, and Ray Allen and Norris Cole and Mario Chalmers. Those guys take far fewer of those mid-range jump shots because it's not as good for them. And so there's that idea of you have to take a certain number of those shots to, to make it through a game. And so if you allocate them in an efficient way and make sure that the guys who who make those shots. Chris Bosh is another one. You know, if, if Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade and LeBron James, if they're soaking up those inefficient shots for you, you're going to be better off than having Norris Cole taking those shots. And also by having them in a way occupy that space on the floor, you give some attention that way and then you allow the other players to function in closer to optimal places, which is another factor in terms of just actually spacing the floor and the geometry of it. Yeah, I think that's a really important component, too. You know, you watch the Heat, and a lot of the movement in that mid-range area is just LeBron or Wade or Bosh, and everybody else is either on the perimeter or they're floating along the baseline, and a lot of those cuts are baseline cuts, too. So it's about the shape of the offense, too, and, and sort of where you where you keep your weapons. And then the other team that has a really high disparity shot making from their number is the Houston Rockets. They're a fascinating team to me in almost every function, offense and defense. They're I, I, I'm not sure that I figured them out yet. Yeah, they were another interesting case when I started running these XPPS numbers last year. The XPPS numbers I have go back to 2001, which is as far back in the NBA's database as they have been tracking these shot locations. And so the Houston Rockets last season, their XPPS was by a huge margin the highest XPPS of any team going back to 2001. And it's because pretty much everything that they took was a three-pointer, a shot at the rim, or a trip to the the free throw line. I think if I remember off the top of my head, it was something like 65 or 70 percent of their of their non-turnover possessions were either three-pointers, shots at the rim, or trips to the free throw line. And it, I mean, it, an absurd difference between them and everyone else for the last 10 years. And then this season, the first couple times they ran the numbers at the beginning of this season, they were even blowing away their mark from last year's. So they had even moved further to the fringe, which was was pretty amazing. And it, it would be, I don't think we have the data for it, but to see how that has also reflected itself in their D-League affiliate is, is pretty amazing that they've basically tried to instill this concept to maximize on those grounds. Yeah, and you know, I think it's, they're using, it's the Vipers, if I'm not mistaken. I think they're using the Vipers uh, sort of as a lab. I read an article about it this week, and I think they said they're averaging something like 43-point attempts a game. And so it's almost like they sort of want to see how far, you know, what's what's the edge where we start to... To, to hit diminishing returns, you know, where taking so many three-pointers starts to have some negative consequences that we're not seeing, you know, right now in the NBA. So they're, you know, they're watching this team, they're watching this experiment that they've sort of set up and designed, and it's going to, you know, it's probably going to shape what the Rockets offense looks like moving forward. And it also will have some interesting ramifications in terms of the skills that professional teams look for in terms of the talent they're evaluating moving forward. Because if you're thinking about building an offense more in their model, then you're looking for some different things, obviously some similar things to other systems. 
Well, yeah, it's really interesting how much more valuable three-point shooting has become over the past few years. And there's guys who I think might not play in the league, you know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, not because they weren't talented enough, but because the the specific skill set that they brought to the table was not what was, you know, in vogue and not what was valued at the time. I believe he's injured, but I'm thinking about a guy like John Jenkins for the Atlanta Hawks, and it's shooting is what he brings to the table maybe five, six, seven years ago, the shortcomings and all the things that he he couldn't do might have really defined him for for GMs. But now they look at him and they see, oh, well, he's passable in these other areas and he's a knockdown shooter. And so he's worth a roster spot. And another guy who I think is a better all-round player than that, but is still in that conversation is Ryan Anderson, who has, I think, is one of those guys who's just fortunate enough to be born at almost exactly the right time to maybe be at the forefront of this kind of evolution of the four position. Yeah, I mean, he is the stretch four. You could argue that he's sort of even a more pure version of that than than somebody like Dirk Nowitzki, who's been around a little bit longer, just because Dirk does so many other things besides shoot from the perimeter, and he's, you know... um, Dirk creates his own offense in the post and from the elbow and things like that, where where Anderson's pretty much a spot-up shooter. You know, it's really interesting. This is another idea that I was sort of toying with the other the other day about, you know, over the past couple of years, people have sort of been talking about this positional revolution and how we're building these new positions, things like the stretch four or the, or the three and D wing or whatever. And when I look at it, it seems like less of a revolution and more of, of an evolution. That it, it, There's not new positions on the floor. We're asking the people in those positions to do different things um, because of the way the game is played. And I agree with that. And that's part of the reason why finding positions only on defensive capabilities and niches, because (laughs) offensively we're seeing, and more of this than before, and you saw it before, but the idea of people having very different offensive skill sets than their physical build would indicate LeBron in some ways is the prototype of this, but you see it with a guy like Ryan Anderson as well, that the space that they optimally occupy on the offensive end is not the same. You're not putting necessarily your biggest player just sitting them in the middle and going on, going on and out. And I mean, there are guys like Magic that did that beforehand, but we're seeing a bigger embracing of that now. Yeah, and and I think there's more room to dabble, I would guess I would say, on the offensive end, where there's sort of more space to overlap different skill sets and get get skills out of different packages on the offensive end, but sort of what's the ultimate limiting factor about what you can play and how creative you can get on the offensive end is making sure that whatever those five guys are on the offensive end, that they can be rearranged at the other end of the floor into something that can defend the basket. To me, in some ways, the guy that reflects the interesting nuance of that is somebody that you were about recently, which is George Hill, in that his value to the Pacers is very interesting because of the kind of the disparity with defense and offense. Yeah, he's, you know, I'm a Pacers fan, and I feel like he has been unfairly targeted for the past two years. And people have been really, you know, when you look up and down their lineup, he's the one who sticks out. because, And he sticks out because he doesn't catch your eye, because he doesn't do anything that's, that's really noticeable. He doesn't make bold, flashy contributions. And so people look at him and they say, he's the weak link in the Pacers or starting lineup, he's he's the spot where they would have to upgrade. If if this group is not good enough to beat the Heat now or to win a title now, that Hill is the spot that would need to be upgraded. And I think that viewpoint takes a very narrow and naive approach to, to what a point guard can be and what a point guard needs to be. So when you look at the Pacers, you know, everything starts with their defense and what Hill does for them defensively is so important. And so, you know, he's a he's a good on the ball defender fighting over screens, getting over the 
the top, you know, presenting resistance at the point of attack. There's a lot of players who can do that in the league, but there's not a lot of players who are also interchangeable and can move out to the wing and defend a shooting guard. Um, and a really big component of what the Pacers do defensively is, you know, everybody is sort of aware of this idea of Hibbert sagging off pick and rolls. You know, he doesn't jump out and try and deter the ball handler. He sort of sags back to the basket and they give up the mid range. And the reason that the Pacers can survive doing that is that the wings, whether it's Stevenson or George or George Hill, whoever's not on the ball in that pick and roll, they're going to sag in from the wings too. And they're going to make sure that that mid range jump shot that Hibbert's leaving is not really a wide open jump shot. And so they get in and they deter the ball handler, but then they also get back out to the shooters on the wing and make sure that they're not giving up open shots on the perimeter. And so Hill's ability to you know, to essentially be completely interchangeable defensively with with Paul George and Lance Stevenson in terms of those responsibilities, that makes him invaluable to the Pacers. And then the fact that on the offensive end, he's a great spot-up shooter. He can initiate the offense. Obviously, we'd like to get a little bit more from him in the, in the pick and roll, maybe a little bit more aggressiveness there, but he fills the role of what the Pacers do offensively. You know, if you think about, people have talked about chasing Rajon Rondo or something like that, the the Pacers offense would collapse with Ray John Rondo, not because Ray John Rondo is not talented, because, but because he doesn't fit. You know, they need a, a point guard who can space the floor and let Stevenson and George come off those curls and work at the elbow. And so Hill is not the most talented point guard in the league. And the Pacers could probably get a more talented point guard um, if they were really working at it. But it's not just about talent. It's about fit. And the other thing that relates when you're talking about the wings and the interchangeability with the way that the Pacers system works is how they use the length of their perimeter players. And that when you're thinking about helping out but not giving up the open shot, a big factor in that is that, you know, they have the length and the quickness to make it so that they can cover those distances in shorter periods of time. And George Hill is a really natural fit for that kind of system. Yeah, his length and quickness really make that work. Being able to, you know, I mean, essentially the the Pacer system requires those wings, Stevenson, George, and Hill, essentially requires them to be in two spots at once. They have to be sagging in on that pick-and-roll ball handler, and they have to be making sure that there's not an open shot on the perimeter. And, you know, the results speak for themselves that they've been able to do that to a really high degree. The other thing that I uh, I mentioned in that piece about George Hill that was, that was really interesting to me was his value in transition. And it's sort of the same thing. You know, we talk about interchangeability and length. George and Stevenson and George Hill are all really great rebounders. And so whoever happens to be closest to the basket when a shot goes up, they're going to the glass, they're getting that defensive rebound, and the other two are going out and filling the wings. So if, if George Hill's pulling down that rebound, he's pushing the ball up in transition and, and, uh, and George and Stevenson are on the wings. If it's Stevenson under the basket, then George Hill and Paul George are filling the wings. And that interchangeability is really important because they, they rely quite a bit on that transition offense and it's not like you know with certain other teams not to keep picking on Rondo but it's not like the Celtics where every defensive rebound immediately goes into Rondo's hands and then they're moving the ball up the floor you know the Pacers anybody in that backcourt can get it and go as somebody who covered the Pacers Warriors game last night we're recording this on Tuesday and the game was on Monday the other interesting part about that interchangeability you see it a little bit in terms of offensive rebounds they obviously they're amazing at getting back and stopping transition but if a guy is 
close enough to get an offensive rebound, it seems like he has the green light to do it. And just even just being in the right place at the right time makes their makes that a little different than other teams. Yeah, and they, they you know they rely on each other. They know that if one of them's going to sneak up and get on the offensive glass, that the other two are going to be ready. And they just exert so much energy defensively. They work so hard on their transition defense. They put so much effort into getting back and making sure that they're between the man and the basket. You know that they can take some chances on the offensive glass, and they know it's not going to kill them at the other end. And there's a really good rationale behind the idea that it, you're not going to outheat Miami. You know, you're not going to beat them in a way that they're in their own game. And so in order to, if, even if you're designing a team, I'm not advocating for that, to beat Miami, you would want to excel in an area that is very different than them and ideally be in a way that they would have a difficulty to counter. And I think Indiana, even if it's just kind of in a way by luck, by getting Hibbert and George together, They've been able to do that to a reasonable degree. Yeah, I mean, the narrative about the Heat-Pacers matchup has been mostly about, you know, Hibbert defending the rim and Hibbert keeping LeBron and and Wade out of the paint. And that's been a huge part of of their success against the Heat going back to last year's playoffs. But there's, there's a lot to it. And, you know, they do a great job of keeping the Heat out of transition. And, you know, when you see the Heat go on runs, when you see the Heat, you know, separate themselves a little bit, it's usually because the Pacers have strung together a couple turnovers and haven't gotten back in transition and that's where you see the heat really blow things up and so being able to do that and then push the heat back the other way you know you know people pick on on Wade and LeBron a little bit for this but time spent arguing with a referee over not getting a call and the Pacers are are going the other direction and getting an easy basket you know before the defense is set up that that's really important for the Pacers against the heat too and that also in a way that has to be kind of part of the design of the Pacers because even though they have talent offensively, it's not necessarily their strength. So to be able to maximize when they get those kind of, if you want to call them competitive advantages, that they've just ingrained that, that you know they need to go for the jugular in those situations because they're their best chances to score. Yeah, it's, that's the thing I think that has impressed me more than anything else about the Pacers this year is that they have just... They just have not let up. You know, there's been quarters and stretches here or there, but they've had, they've seemed to have a reservoir this year that they have not had in years past. You know, there were times the past two years where you'd watch them get down early to a mediocre team and you just, you just knew things were going to steamroll and they were going to end up losing by 25. And it happened, you know, or if they took a couple punches, they would just, they got a couple punches early in the wrong spot and they would just fold. And you watch them this year and they just, they just keep getting back up. They just keep getting back up. And some of that just comes with the experience, but they're in such an interesting position because I feel like everything now is just a prelude to the Eastern Conference Finals. And I can't think of a situation where that's been true for a team where, I mean, we were even in the locker room last time. I thought about even asking them. It's like, basically, it seems like they're in a holding pattern until the hardest thing that they'll do all season. Yeah. And it's kind of weird. I can't remember who I was talking to about this earlier this year, but they it, it, before one of the Pacers and Heat matchups, uh, I think the second one, somebody asked, you know, is it important that the Pacers win this, that they take these first two regular season games from the Heat? And I didn't quite know how to answer it because my gut tells me, no, it doesn't matter at all. I mean, the Heat are the champions and the Pacers know that. And the statement that the Pacers want to make, they can't make it until they're eliminating the Heat from the playoffs. That's the statement that they want to make, and everything else, you know, is is second to that. You know, they don't prove what they want to prove until they until they knock the Heat out of the playoffs. But at the same time, it's clear that they have something to prove to themselves, that this is not about them, you know, proving that they can compete with the Heat. This is about – it's it's almost like they've sort of, they've sort of found something – 
stakes and and it's um you know, we're going to beat everybody by as much as we can every night. And we're, you know, we're sort of not going to, it's almost like they're not looking at the heat. It's like they're looking at everybody. It's been exciting to watch as a Pacers fan after the past couple of years where they would have great, great games and fall them up with absolute stinkers. They've not had very many stinkers this year. And I waver pretty consistently on the Pacers about whether I worry about them burning out because they're just playing so hard or also kind of easing back because of the understanding that they know exactly what they're playing for. This isn't a situation where they're pushing on the gas pedal because they're, they don't know what to do and that's all they know how to do. They know that they're not playing for now, that they're playing for those couple weeks in late May and early June. So I worry a little bit less about it now than I would have, let's say, last year. Yeah, but I I also feel like if they I think there's I don't know if fear fear is the right word, but there's there's sort of I don't know that they trust that they could let off the gas pedal and get it back. I think they feel like we're playing the best basketball that we can right now and we need to continue playing the best basketball that we can every single night. And I think they I think they really feel like if they take a night off, if they no show a game or two, that they might not be able to hit this peak again. They feel like they're playing at their peak and they they don't want to, you know, they don't want to risk losing it. And that's fascinating considering when you think of Miami or you think of the Spurs the last five or six years, yeah. but teams are teams are in different places and they're a young team and they're, they're kind of feisty in that sense, but they're embracing this kind of idea that they have a target. I'm trying to remember who it was last night, but they were talking about, oh, David West, that they're getting teams best shots every night now and how certain teams have a cha- have a problem with that. I mean, that's just a factor in the league, you know, when you're becoming that. And I think in some ways the Clippers and Warriors are both dealing with that a little bit now of being higher profile and getting teams better shot. But the Pacers are just, they're full on embracing it. They want that. And that's a really interesting development with this team. Yeah, it seems like it's sort of feeding, uh, you know, it's the cycle that's feeding, you know, they're beating teams, they're getting a tougher challenges, they're beating teams, they're getting more confident. And it just, it just seems like it's steamrolling. I certainly hope it lasts until, until May and that they, you know, they don't burn themselves out. I think they feel like they have to take every team's best shot and beat them anyway. And that walking into the playoffs with that sort of confidence of we stomped everybody this year, I think that's, I think they feel like that's more important to them than, you know, uh, being a little more rested than they, than they probably will be. So going from one kind of terrifying defense to the other kind of terrifying defense, the Knicks this year, defensively, it's just been it's insane, both from a numerical standpoint and more anecdotal standpoint, to just see what kind of disaster they've been on that end. Yeah, it's it's been awful to watch. You know, I have a lot of friends and guys that I write with and stuff who are Knicks fans, and it's yeah, it just feels awful to watch. I mean, they're generally they're just playing an uninspired you know, style of basketball. And, you know, they go on these mini runs and then for five minutes, it looks like nobody cares. You know, they're, they don't, they're not going to be a top five defensive team, but they have the talent to be a lot better than they are. And I know Chandler's absence really made things difficult for them, but so does, you know, so does just being careless and not paying attention and not being where you're supposed to be. There does not seem to be a lot of effort put into doing the little things with the Knicks right now. And both them and the Pelicans, I think, are interesting examples of the idea of having a tipping point in number of bad defenders that you can have on the floor at the same time. Because there's there are pieces, Zach Lowe wrote a piece recently as well, that 
Like Anthony Davis seems like a good defender and his team has done terrible that, but I think it's that you, you just a great defender or a very good one cannot handle having that many bad defensive players on the floor at the same time. Yeah. And his, you know, the role for Anthony Davis then becomes really, you know, sort of fuzzy because instead of sort of, you know, you look at Roy Hibbert and he knows what he's supposed to do every time down the floor and he knows where he's supposed to be every time down the floor, but he knows where he's supposed to be because George Hill's where he's supposed to be and Lance Stevenson's where he's supposed to be and Paul George is where he's supposed to be. You look at, you know, you look at the Pelicans and their backcourts all over the place and people are in and out of the lineup. And so, you know, on any given possession, Anthony Davis might have, you know, might be having to cover for three or four or five different mistakes in different places. And then the other example, so you're going on that sort of tipping point, I think that the Warriors have been an interesting example of the other side of being able to bring in a guy like Iguodala, who, while he hasn't, especially in the last week or two, been as strong as he was in previous years or even earlier this year, the idea of having competent defensive players at enough key positions can help keep shakier players in line in the same kind of in the reverse but the parallel of the of the other system you know and it's ironic I've, I've eaten some crow in the Warriors defense this year because even with a healthy Bogut and the addition of Iguodala I didn't think they would be that much better defensively this year and my thinking going into the season was that when Bogut was out and not having Iguodala center and and small forward were still usually their defensive strong points you know Festus Azeli was was really good at the beginning of the year and then Harrison Barnes and Draymond Green were often the the two best defenders on the floor for the Warriors. So when I looked at them going into the year this year, I said, you know, they've they've made upgrades, but they're at the positions of strength. You know, they're at the positions that were already stronger, and you still have to play Curry and, and David Lee out there. You know, thirty six, forty minutes a night. But the the whole system has worked better, and the way Boga and Iguodala cover for everybody else and make everything else easier on people um, has been really important. And to be honest. David Lee's been he's been borderline respectable this year defensively. He's you know he's clearly taken some of that criticism to heart and he, he's done a much much better job this year. And some of that has somebody who covers the team also goes into accountability. It's that I think that now there aren't as many excuses for when guys take defensive possessions off or do things like that because they have those guys. So not only do they have guys who can fill the gaps, but they make other players feel bad and so they take more effort to make sure there are less gaps to fill. And also, it's I think it's really helped Clay Thompson in the sense that his defensive responsibilities have gone down to a point. And that I, I think there are certain guys in the league who are much better defenders when you ask them to do less. And there are some guys who that doesn't make as big of a difference for, but being able to stash him in certain situations on an opponent's second-best perimeter player makes his life so much easier. And when you're asking a guy to score a lot on the offensive end, it probably helps him there as well. Yeah, I think there's a there's a fair you're right there's a fair number of guys like that who if we put them into a different, different role with different defensive responsibilities they would look a whole lot better than they than they do. Mike Dunleavy is one for me. He's one that I've been invested in defending his defense because when he played for the Pacers he was a really good team defender um, and I know injuries have slowed him down more and more and you know people look at him and they're like well he's not going to stop LeBron well nobody's going to stop LeBron but he does his job off the ball he's where he's supposed to be he takes charges you know he he doesn't make mistakes he doesn't he doesn't give up backdoor cuts and stuff like that um you know Corver's another guy like that you know people see you know white 
shooter and and they just assume he's terrible on defense and he struggled his first couple of years in the league but he's the same kind of guy he knows what his responsibilities are if you put him out in front of that defense and made him defend the other team's best score every night he would be in trouble but where they put him and what they ask him to do he does a great job with it the funny thing is that when you mentioned Dunleavy, the, the the Knicks guy I thought of was another white shooter, which is J.J. Redick, yeah. who made himself into a competent defender and probably better than competent now by effort and learning where to be and by eliminating some of the mistakes that were the most egregious in his earlier seasons. And you know what's funny is I think probably Redick's defense looks a little bit worse this year, and it certainly was a mess when he was in Milwaukee, but, you know, the whole team was a mess. But the fact that when he came into the league, he got to play with Dwight Howard. And there's probably not another situation where you, as a as a perimeter player, will have more defined defensive responsibilities than you would with Stan Van Gundy and, and Dwight Howard defending the I mean, you funnel penetration to Dwight Howard. I mean, that's your job and that's it. So I wonder how much of of Reddick's development, uh, his defensive development, I mean, certainly he put a ton of work into that end and, you know, helped make himself into a a good defender. But I wonder how much of that, you know, was the situation that he, he got to put that work in with Dwight Howard behind him and Stan Van Gundy on the sidelines. And that's an excellent point and could be the best sign for James Harden moving forward is that once Harden figures out how to do that, maybe he can channel a little bit more into that and become become a better defensive player, though becoming a defensive player for him is not that high a task. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he's hard to watch. I mean, the, the thing about Redrick was he cared, you know, he put the effort in, you know, he, the responsibilities were simple, but he still worked his tail off to fulfill those responsibilities. And you watch Harden and he plays maybe half, a uh, half a game of defense in, in the 40 minutes that he's out there on the floor. So we're at about the halfway point in this NBA season in terms of actual games played, the all-star break still a little ways away. What are you most looking forward to seeing the rest of this year? A lot of things. I mean, Pacers fan, I'm eager to see how how uh, how they finish the year and what that looks like. I'm eager to see uh, what happens with Oklahoma City with, without Russell Westbrook and what Kevin Durant's been doing the past couple weeks has been incredible. And I'm I'm eager to see what they look like going into the playoffs and what their team structure looks like. And if they, you know, Durant's been incredible, but you know, are they going to be able to head into the playoffs? I, I think Westbrook should be back by then. But are they going to head into the playoffs without? Kevin Kevin Durant having to score 35 every night. Are they going to have figured out a way to to balance that offense a little bit more? And then just, I guess, maybe the depth in the Western Conference. And, you know, there's a lot of teams in there who are having really good seasons. And I think as we go over the second half, we'll start, uh, we'll maybe start to see a little bit more separation. And on that note with the Western Conference, I think the team that's, that's really interesting in terms of all of this is Portland because they're they're, we've seen them kind of do, in a lot of ways, their best-case scenario, which is that they've beaten the teams that you could say they're, quote-unquote, supposed to beat and all of that. But maybe they've developed enough, if you want to call it swagger, to maybe be more competitive in the games that previously we might have thought that they would be more susceptible to losing. Well, they definitely believe in themselves. I watched uh, I watched a good chunk of the game last night against Houston, and you know, even when they were getting hammered early, Houston was hitting everything from the outside. You know, they definitely play with play with a certain attitude. I don't know. I I still there's something about Portland that still feels just like a little bit inflated to me. Like 
just playing a little bit above their heads. You know, the defense is not, uh, you know, has gotten way better, but it's still a little bit shaky and just relying so much on the outside shot, you know, Aldridge and Lillard. It feels like there's some variance there where they could get into a playoff series in two or three games, the jumpers aren't falling all of a sudden and things just collapse on them. That in conjunction with them being a bad defensive team because they don't have the foundation of saying, okay, we can win in 80, we can win in 82 to 80 game. If <laughs> I don't think they're going to have any 82 to 80 games. Yeah. And it's, you know, it just, I don't know. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something there that feels a little bit unsustainable to me. Not that they're going to collapse and not that they don't belong in the playoffs or that they haven't been one of the Western Conference's best teams this year, but they just, something there feels just a little bit shaky. Are there any teams in the East that, barring injury, because of course that's the big qualifier, do you think could make even a kind of a distant chance of beating Miami or Indiana in a series before that Eastern Conference Finals? God, I don't think so. It would take a miracle in Brooklyn. It would take a bag of miracles in New York. If Horford was healthy and, you know, Lou Williams really had things going, maybe the Hawks. But, you know, without Horford, I just I think they're buried against Indiana or Miami. And same thing with Toronto. You know, they've been really great. But in a playoff series, I don't think they can sort of hold it together. And that's the weird difference to me between the East and the West, whereas in the in the East, I feel like there's nobody that can beat the two of them, whereas in the West, maybe because San Antonio is so well coached, they go a little bit in a different group. But if you talk about the six kind of top teams and if Memphis is healthy, then they become interesting, then I don't see any one of those teams reliably beating every other team in a series. It'd just be a lot of weird kind of high variance matchups in my mind. Yeah, same thing. I don't I don't see a clear favorite and it seems like every couple of weeks, you know, another team sort of rises to the surface. You know, earlier in the year Portland was just steamrolling everybody and then the Spurs rose up and then the Thunder and then, you know, there was a couple of weeks where the Clippers were on top and it just seems like, you know, are sort of uh, fluctuating and going up and down, but you know, I think all those teams are are sort of, you know, right in the same place and and once they get in the playoffs, it'll be who's healthy and uh, a little bit of luck and a little bit of variance. And, and um, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure having you and love to have you on again sometime in the future. Thanks a lot, Danny. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'd love to come back on later. Thanks again to Ian Levy for coming on. You can read him at Hickory High, which is H I C K O R Y dash H I G H dot com. You can also read him on Hardwood Proxism and you can follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Hickory High, H I C K O R Y. H-I-G-H. Next up is Cameron Schott. He's a writer for Real GM, and he's been focusing in recent times on the D-League, which is something that I think is underreported, underappreciated in the scope of today's NBA, so I was very excited to talk to him. Runs about 12 minutes, enjoyed talking with him, and it's exciting as a draft guy to see how some of these players, whether they be already in the league or be guys like P.J. Harrison, who... Cameron just covered his first game in the D-League that are trying to make their way in a more unconventional path. So, hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much to Cameron for coming on. Thank you for having me. So, you covered P.J. Harrison's first NBA D-League game, and I was hoping that you could walk us through that. And if you want to, a little bit of background for those who might be less familiar on his process to getting to the D-League, which is really interesting. Yeah, so Harrison had a 
difficult nine months or so where he was in trouble at North Carolina for his involvement with a guy who paid for rental cars and he was charged for speeding and then he was cited for having marijuana possession. So he went through a long investigation with the NCAA where eventually North Carolina decided that they weren't going to reinstate Harrison after all. That was in late December. So he made his debut for the Texas Legend a couple days ago, where he showed himself to be a real phenomenal scorer. He was projected to be a first-round pick before all of his off-the-court issues. He started the game with no rust. He was 3-3 to start. Two of them were threes. His jumper had no rust, despite it being an NBA line now. And he showed himself to be a real good scorer at six foot six. He was hitting threes without any trouble. And then he second half was attacking the rim using ball facing into one or two dribble pull up. It was a very good debut, a good sign for what's to come this season. And how did he look on the defensive end? Defensively, he was just as impressive, which was a good sign as well. He was hustling for loose balls, getting his hands in passing lanes, and he ended up getting six steals. And uh, they interviewed the point guard, Mickey McConnell, after a game, asked how Harrison did. And he said he was most impressed with what Harrison did defensively, even though he had 22 points. So it was a good all-around game from Harrison. And if he keeps playing like this, there's no reason he shouldn't be a first-round pick. And that's really nice to hear. I was somebody, and one of many, who was very high on him going into last year. And it's always disappointing when a high-level talent has the kind of troubles that he's had, or really any troubles. And to see that that talent is still there, and also to show that it can show against a high level of competition, because I think the D-League gets kind of a bum rap now out in the U.S. in terms of the level of talent. Yeah, you know, the D-League talent-wise is right there with the European League in terms of talent, but it doesn't get as good of a rep because of its style of play. It's kind of more of high school AAU ball, not really too organized. It's ball screen and pick and rolls, but it's a lot of isolation looks and not a ton of good shots, but it's a good opportunity for players like Harrison or players who aren't getting much time on their NBA team to come down and develop their games. And as somebody who spends more time in, with the D-League than I do, and you wrote a nice piece on this, I think it was yesterday, about how it has this interesting dynamic that you just mentioned about the, these guys that are trying to make it and trying to get eyes on them, but also guys who have a guaranteed roster spot or have a roster spot who are down for playing various games, like Kuzmich just had a nice game for the Santa Cruz Warriors. Yeah, you know, Kuzmich and uh, Nedovich are two guys for the Warriors that have been up and down throughout this season simply because they're not getting much time on the NBA team, which is understandable as they're, you know, one of the better teams in the Western Conference. And so what the Warriors and other teams throughout the D-League have done is just you don't want them to get out of shape or anything like that. So they you send them down to D-League and they keep playing and they play against pretty good competition. And eventually you hope they develop into someone they can contribute at the next level. And also it can give them coaching and more on-the-court experience. And you see, the, to me, the most interesting team with that is the Rio Grande Vipers, the Rockets affiliate, in terms of indoctrinating, if you want to use that word, a, a player that they see potential in into their system. 
Yeah, I actually watched them last night. A guy that was down there was Isaiah Cannon, who was their draft pick. They're one of the big proponents of the D-League. I know they missed out on Jeremy Wynn. That was a guy they really wanted when uh, Corey went to New York, and then they eventually got him back. But they said uh, something along the lines of, we wish we could have saw more of him, but we just didn't have the chance. And then now the D-League's growing and expanding, and I think eventually you'll see one D-League team for every NBA team. Uh, right now, yeah, you have the Santa Cruz Warriors, who recently came into the league for the Golden State Warriors. And I think it's just a really good opportunity for NBA teams to scout the talent at the back end of their rosters. And also, it has a lot of potential as a potential rehab place for higher-level players, for, let's say, clear-cut NBA players who are looking to make rehab in a way that parallels minor league baseball more than anything that the NBA has ever really had. Yeah, I know Rondo was recently down there for practice. He never played any game, but it's a good way for players to who are out of the league to find their way back in. That's something that Josh Howard's done. He played good tonight. Yeah, I think the D League's really starting to become like Major League Baseball, where you can find your way out of the league, but then hope to climb back in with the opportunity of the D-League. And that's something that hopefully more players do. Another guy, more in the first camp of a guy who's younger and the NBA is trying to get a look at him, is Pierre Jackson, who I was really high on as a draft prospect and has done a really beautiful job so far in the D-League. And you, you just recently wrote a piece on him. And I, I, he's one of those kind of success stories in terms of showing how the D-League can, I think, help talents like him as well. Yeah, Pierre Jackson has definitely become one of the bigger superstars in the D-League. He's leading the league in scoring at 28.5 points per game, and he's really shown that his five foot ten size isn't that big of an issue. He's extremely quick, great ball handling skills, and can create his own shot. And I think uh, he, he should be up in the NBA sooner and later. I know the Pel- his rights are owned by the Pelicans, so... That's the only team as of right now that can call him up, and they just trade for Tyshawn Taylor. So he may not get his shot for a while unless it's a trade, but he's a guy that's been lighting it up offensively. And even though he's five foot ten, he can score in bunches, and I think he has a little bit of Nate Robinson in him where he's a streaky scorer and can really provide some scoring off the bench for an NBA team at some point. Yeah, it was disappointing that the Pelicans decided to add Tyshawn, who I like as well, but to add Tyshawn instead of bringing up Pierre, just because it would have been fun to see what he could do. But I think he's going to get his chance, especially if Drew Holiday's injury ends up keeping him out for a little while, like it looks like it very well might. Yeah, you know, the Pelicans, they don't have much to lose. So I think calling up a guy like Pierre Jackson and seeing what he could do would be something that can't hurt them. Uh, so I think he'll eventually get the call-up. I've, I've read that there have been some issues of him in regards to signing and agreeing on a contract, but he's a guy that has really dominated in the D-League. He should be in the NBA very soon. The other, going back to Harrison, the other fascinating component of guys like him, and this was true of Glenn Rice Jr. last year, is that he hasn't been in the draft yet. So he is doing, well, he's doing well early on in the D-League, but he's also showcasing himself in terms of the NBA draft because he's going to have to be in that next year. 
Yeah, definitely. You know, you already have NBA coaching and NBA GMs right there. Although I think it would be a better opportunity to be playing in the NCAA simply because there's more, you know, draft-eligible guys, guys that will get drafted. It's only been one game, but he's still shown that he could be a first-rounder. And if he keeps performing like this, there's no doubt they will be. It's just staying out of trouble and continuing to show himself as a scorer, which he has. One other guy who I'm based in the San Francisco Bay Area who's gotten plenty of interest here is Seth Curry because of his brother and everything else like that. Have you had a chance to watch much of him since he returned to the D-League from after his short stint in Memphis? Uh, I haven't seen him since returning, but I saw him a lot before. He was uh, – it was just a matter of time before some team signed him and the Grizzlies did. Unfortunately, he only played in one game. It was a 30-point game. He only played four minutes, and they didn't re-sign him after his 10-day 10-day contract expired. But he he should get another shot soon. Uh, he's really improved as an all-around point guard with his ball handling and uh, running a team in that area. Uh, he proved in college that he could shoot the ball, even though he's not shooting as well as he has. But he's another guy that could be a great late-season addition for an NBA team who needs a point guard. The guy that you chose as the player of the week for this past week is Rodney Bartholomew. And do you think of him more as a, because his statistics, as you talked about in the piece, in the the D-League, at least the last week, have been just ridiculous. Do you feel like he's a guy who could maybe make the jump up, given maybe a little bit more time to develop? I don't think he's as intriguing as a prospect as previous ones we've talked about as he's six foot eight power forward, but he's definitely had a huge week, thirty two points in both games. And I think if he keeps scoring and performing at this rate, he'll certainly get a shot. But I, I'm not sure he's up there with guys like Peter Jackson or Seth Curry. But yeah, he had a really good week. And uh, if he's, a guy keeps putting up numbers like that, there's no reason he shouldn't get some calls. Beyond the guys that we've already mentioned, has there been anybody that stood out to you either as a player in the D-League or as a guy who you think should get a call-up at some point this season? Uh, One guy who plays with Harrison, actually, on the Texas Legends is Devin Ebanks. He spent uh, the previous three seasons with the Lakers, so he's already been in the NBA. And he's another guy that had a big, big week this last week with 23 points and six rebounds per game, but he's a long, lengthy defender who could really provide some defense at the NBA level. He's improving as a scorer. So I think a team, you know, if a guy goes down with an injury who needs a backup small forward who can defend, then Devin Ebanks may be that guy. And how uh, how far along are we in the D-League season? Because I'm not completely sure how it parallels with the NBA year. Do they align pretty well, or is it a little bit off? They align pretty well. We're about halfway. I think a little short of halfway. So, yeah, it's pretty much the same schedule as the NBA. Well, thank you so much for providing the insight. I'm really happy to have somebody on the site who's been writing, especially writing well about the D-League. I think it's one of the underappreciated kind of aspects of professional basketball, particularly in the United States. So appreciate that. Uh, loved having you on and love to have you on again. Yeah, anytime. Thank you again for having me. Thanks again to Cameron for coming on. Really appreciated him giving his take on the D-League and some guys that I think a lot of us have been following for years in various capacities and just seeing how they're doing. Next up, we have Nate Duncan. He writes for Basketball Insiders, and 
we start with the Pacers and their scope and the Eastern Conference and Miami and also with the elite teams in the West. Then we move into interesting topics like the trade rumor that his site actually reported about Greg Monroe possibly going to the Wizards either now or as a free agent at the end of the after the season. And also Lance Stevenson's fascinating situation, which I think is one of the more underappreciated stories that will hugely impact the summer and the real power struggle in terms of the league for the next two to three years, because as a young unrestricted free agent, he's going to have a really interesting path and decision process. So our conversation runs for about 40 minutes. I really enjoyed having him on and I think you'll like it too. Thank you so much to Nate for coming on. Good to be here. How are you doing? Doing well. Figured we might as well start as both of us covered the Pacers game at the Warriors last night with a little bit of discussion on how you think the Pacers stack up with the elites in both conferences. Statistically, they are the elites. And there's been some discussion that their offense isn't good enough, but their defense is just so much better than even the number two defense that you can't just look at what their league rankings are because their number one means a lot more than a lot of people's number one would. And they're, I think, about 4.5 points per 100 possessions better than the second-place Bulls are as of at least yesterday. So with that being so incredible on defense, they really only need a mediocre offense to be one of the prime contenders, if not at least from a statistical standpoint, the prime contender. How weird is it that we basically already know the Eastern Conference Finals? Do we? I guess we do, considering that Toronto has kind of fallen back to Earth these last couple of games. Again, from a statistical standpoint, obviously we don't put all of our eggs in this basket, but... Since they made the gate trade, they actually, I think they've been outscoring teams by about seven points per 100 possessions, so, which is much better than Miami. So there's some thought that you know, maybe they, at least from a statistical standpoint, might be able to challenge. But you know, in, in practicalities, I agree with you, it's very likely to be the Heat and the Pacers. And considering from what I've heard, Brooke Lopez is out for the remainder of the season, which would include the playoffs as long as that reporting is correct, then that I think that takes Brooklyn out of the equation in terms of winning a playoff series against either Miami or Indiana. Yeah, you would, you would have to think so. I mean, their defense has been much better now with Garnett on the court. You know, oddly, for the first couple months of the year, they were really bad with him on the court, and he's gotten back in the swing of things. Uh, I don't want to say plays himself into shape because I don't think he was necessarily out of shape, but, you know, he's found his rhythm there to use an awesome uh, NBA cliche. And going back to the Pacers, do you have concerns? I still do that their offense, as much as you said that it, it only needs to be average for them, but when you get down to a, to a playoff series, let's say it's against an elite team, Miami, San, San Antonio, whoever, that it can stagnate enough to make it them more vulnerable? You know, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, they're one of the few teams, Paul George has kind of made a leap this year, but I think they're one of the few teams that has adequate scoring at all five positions in their starting lineup. So I don't know that stagnation is necessarily the right way to look at it because they have a lot of options to go to. I don't think that they're necessarily going to be particularly predictable in that respect, but certainly, you know, they haven't shown an ability to be an upper echelon offense. So 
it's obviously a concern. Anytime your team's not number one in offense and number one in defense, you probably have concerns, that I suppose. But they certainly have been better this year. One thing that they haven't done all that much of the way they did in past years is really hit the offensive glass. That in particular is a way that they were able to be really effective against Miami in the playoffs last year. And they actually had a lot of success against the Warriors last night, especially when Andrew Bogut was either out of the game or or had been subbed out or you know injured his knee for a little bit and, and was out of there. They were able to really bludgeon the Warriors on the offensive glass. So they're going to need to get back to that a little bit. If they can combine that with sort of these elevated performances from George and Stevenson, I think their offense will probably be enough to get by. Yeah, and and that, and that's the thing is that their defense is versatile enough that it does a good job against lots of different teams. So it's I don't think their defense has an Achilles heel in any way, though obviously LeBron is a tough cover for everybody and the Heat have plenty of talent. Yeah, you know, one interesting thing to look at would be how much of their defensive improvement this year, obviously they were great last year, but now they're even better this year, uh, is due to potentially their sort of uh, sloughing off on the offensive glass and making more of an effort to get back on defense, uh, you know, see if one of the ways in which they've improved is allowing less transition points. So it may be that they can't hit the offensive glass quite as hard, especially against a transition-oriented team like Miami and maintain that otherworldly defense, you know, so that's, it's probably something to look at. Uh, you know, good thing we're both really talented writers who can uh, write articles about these things, huh? The, the, the interesting kind of counter to that would be if you kind of understand that Miami is such a dangerous team in transition that the most effective way to short-circuit that would be to get more offensive rebounds and just reduce the number of chances. And I'm sure they've considered that, but it might actually make sense against the Miami that, you know, having an extra guy back, if they're still going to score on you anyway, you might as well focus on giving them less chances. You know, I, that's that's an excellent point. I think another thing that needs to be considered is that, and, and Tom Haverstraw wrote a nice piece about this about a week ago at, at ESPN, that LeBron is really kind of slowing down a little bit, at least in kind of the non-scoring facets. And frankly, you know, we, we've come to expect just, you know, complete superhuman performances from him. And he's obviously been very good this year still, but he's not quite, at least this regular season, the all-encompassing force on defense and the boards that he was in, in previous years. And if you look at the way in which the Heat succeeded and failed last year against the Pacers, a lot of it was very effort-driven you know, when they played hard defense and they really got into guys' faces, especially, you know, in the third quarters of games five and seven, they were really able to take the paces out of their offense, get out in transition, and they looked like, you know, we, we looked like idiots for even thinking the Pacers could compete with them. In games like game four or game six, they really weren't able to keep up that level of defensive intensity. I don't want to say that they weren't playing hard because, you know, obviously it's very difficult to maintain that, but... That's something that they are going to need to be able to do, especially if they're going to be playing small with not a ton of rim protection on the, on the floor. LeBron is going to need to be able to be that all-encompassing force, at least in stretches, the way he was last year. And that's not something that he's really shown all that much of this year. You know, it remains to be seen whether he's still capable of doing it, and he's just sort of taking it easy, which certainly would be defensible and maybe even smart or whether he's kind of slowing down a little bit at age 29. Usually guys, their athletic peak is probably between 
at least from a pure athleticism standpoint, is probably between about 23 and 25. So it wouldn't it wouldn't be unprecedented for him to start slowing down a little bit. And the other point on that, we I think it's an excellent point that we don't know exactly what their top gear is right now. And the other interesting challenge with that goes back to the idea of the weakness of the Eastern Conference is will Miami have to hit that top gear at all before the Pacers series? And that might actually be in some ways more challenging for them because the idea of peaking at the right time will be difficult if they don't need to do that to win either of their preceding playoff series. Do you buy this whole peaking at the right time thing? That's another one of these sports cliches that, I mean, I'm not saying it's not true, but I've never really seen any evidence for that there, there is a specific time at which you have to peak, you know, much like the way like guys who train for the Tour de France, they do all of their training so that they're in like the absolute optimum shape, like during July every year. You know, I, I've never seen any evidence that you have to sort of time your peak and you, or that you're only going to have one peak. I think you either, you play well or, or you don't. And that's based on kind of specific factors, whether it's health or anything else, but there's not sort of a danger of, Oh, we're playing too well now that now is going to cause us to not play as well later. But anyway, I, of course I had to get that aside in. You know, I, I don't I know think, what the answer to that is ultimately. I think that there's a kernel of truth in there and that it gets overblown. I think that there's a, a level of comfort that you can get and understanding where players are going to be and everything that you cannot get if you're not playing at maximum effort. But you can make the argument, and I'm, I think the players on Miami probably would off the record, that they already know what that is. They don't need to hit that level to gain experience. And in terms of peaking at the right time, in terms of the opposite, I think that the reason that that happens is kind of in a way more like an engine that if you run too hot for too long, you just run the risk of other things happening that can sidetrack it. So, you know, if you're playing your starters 40 minutes a game, they're conceptually, whichever way you want to argue it, if it's just by numbers, the randomness, or by wear and tear, more likely that somebody's going to get hurt or something like that, which could derail you. But in terms of the, in terms of that you can do that, I, I think it's a little bit overblown, but I do think that there's a confidence and a comfort from playing at a high level that we've seen from a lot of teams. And we've seen teams, the the last Bulls team that, you know, that flipped that switch when they were going for the three-peat, that it certainly can't happen. It's not to say that it can't, but there is a risk there that if you're not all the way in rhythm, it doesn't happen. But I think the answer to that is that it's all on ceiling anyway. You know, if you're a better team, you're probably going to figure it out in seven games. It's not going to be about that, but it might shift a game. Yeah, and it, it, you know, I, I do agree that Miami has the best ceiling, but they also have very real obstacles to realizing that now, especially with Wade's health. He, I think, missed his third straight game tonight. He's played. He's missed about 25% of their schedule so far. You're sort of playing the lottery of, you know, whether he's going to be ready or not, and, you know, will he be sort of in practice enough with, with his teammates at that point, and is he going to be able to play – those playoff type of minutes, I guess it it will be helpful to sort of have what we're projecting might be two rounds to tune up before they have to go against the Pacers. But so, I mean, in that vein though, who do you think they're going to be playing in the second round? Who's going to be the three seed in the East? I think it's going to be the Raptors as strange as that is to say, considering where things were a while ago, they're a team that's playing well, And I think they've reached the point, which I did not expect them to reach, that 
they're doing too well for Ujiri to trade off their assets. I was thinking they were going to be hovering around the six seed or the seven seed, just kind of in that in that holding pattern, and then they were going to have a couple of guys whose values were going to be higher, you know, because they're playing well, whether that be Lowry or DeRozan, whoever, and that Masai was going to sell high on those guys, and I I think that's a good idea. But now you lose two incentives. One incentive that you lose is the the enthusiasm of the fans, and the second one is that now you're not getting into as good of a position in terms of the draft. You know, even if they win 30%, let's say, of their remaining games, which they're not going to do, they're better than that, then that doesn't put them in the position that it would have put them in if they were, if their record was, let's say, six or seven games worse. I agree with you. I mean, I think there are a couple of factors that go into that. One is how sustainable is their recent performance. I mean, you would expect some regression of the mean, especially because you've just got a team that hasn't really played anywhere close to this level. You have individuals that haven't played particularly close to this level. I looked at their rankings a couple of games ago before these last two losses they had. I think since the gay trade, they're 11th in offense by points per possession and third in defense by points per possession. And I haven't looked at their strength of schedule over that period. But it's hard to think that third in defense is where these guys, you know, that that's their true talent level. When you look at the defensive talent that's on the roster, you don't really have guys who have a history of playing at at that level. So that's got to go into the analysis. But that's an interesting question. You know, let's let's assume your mandate from ownership, I guess we assume everyone's is, that's a whole separate conversation, is to you know, win a championship at some point or win championships, boom or bust. And so if that's your mandate from a jury, how are you going to handle uh, your current roster going forward this year? Are you going to make trades? Are you going to trade away Lowry? Keep DeRozan? Trade him away? What are you going to do? Yeah, I think that it's a really challenging thing, and they've. I think they've been too good. The other factor that I would use in terms of the argument for the Raptors is three is that nobody else has stepped up. I think that there are a lot of teams that are playing better now than they were. Uh, Cleveland has has better talent now. Brooklyn and New York are both playing better, but I don't think they're going to make it all the way back. And teams like the Wizards just aren't that great. You know, it's not that the Raptors are... I think that you bring up a great point that their rankings and all of that seem to overstate the talent they have, but... They're still better than, let's say, Atlanta without Horford and that kind of situation. I think that changed everything in terms of the three seed was having not having Horford there and Washington just not looking like the team they were at the end of last year because Okafor was such an important part and that, that defense just is not near what it was last year. Well, so looking at the Raptors books right now, they've got about $39 million absolute guaranteed for next year. If they retain Amir Johnson at $7 million, which they absolutely will, that puts them up to about $46 million. And then Kyle Lowry, of course, is a free agent. He's been great, but he's also, you know, I think 27, 28. So the question of how much you want to re-sign him for, if, a, if at all, is an interesting question. So if he is re-signed, that's probably going to eat up any cap space they might have. You know, maybe they can pick someone up with the MLE, which you can probably get a little better value with these days than you could under past CBAs. But 
if you decide not to trade any of these guys away and you re-sign everyone, this is your team pretty much if you're Masai Ujiri. And, you know, and then whoever you draft this year with, you know, the 19th pick or, you know, the 23rd pick or something, is that team going to get it done to be a contender? Probably not. I completely agree. And the other factor in that, as as much as Toronto has a reputation for being a, a nice city and everything, is that they have substantial trouble getting free agents. And when you have that reality, you need to have acquire your talent in other ways. And you need to plan for that. Obviously, you can use cap space in that way. But that means that trading for guys and drafting, more importantly are your best ways because when you draft a guy, as long as you want to keep him, he's yours for realistically at least seven years, but more likely eight or nine, no matter what they want, as long as you're willing to pay to keep them. Yeah, so anyone else you see as possibly entering into that mix for the three seed? Not right now. I I think that going to a team that I was hoping would be in that competition, I mean, I wasn't hoping in that competition, but would be among the teams that we're doing now that the Brooklyn and New Yorks of the world have fallen off is Detroit, but their season has just been immensely disappointing, even if it's kind of unsurprisingly disappointing. Well, so that's a good segue because, you know, there's been these rumors of late reported by Basketball Insider's own Alex Kennedy plug, which said that either by trade or the summer as a restricted free agent, uh, the Wizards are very interested in acquiring uh, Greg Monroe. So I, I think we should really talk about what we think of Monroe as a player and, you know, whether he would work for the Wizards and, you know, is there a deal that works between Washington and, and Detroit if, you, if you're both sides? It's fascinating because I think in a lot of ways Washington has assets, but I don't know if they have assets that make sense for Detroit unless they're willing to give up somebody much better than I think they are. I would say Wall and Beal are pretty clearly off the table. But in terms of fit, I have so much trouble, and you and I have talked about this before off the podcast, that I have so much trouble putting in a big investment in a center who is not that truly high-level rim protector. And that's a really big problem with Monroe. He's a good player. He's, he's a good basketball player. I don't think anybody would really deny that. But I worry that his ceiling on a great team is lower than a team like Washington would hope for for that last piece. Yeah, well, I agree with you wholeheartedly. We're, we're both 100% in line that it's very, very difficult for your team to be a big winner unless you have at least one and preferably two solid defensive and rim-protecting bigs. So the, the fit there from a defensive standpoint is difficult with Monroe. The other problem is offensively, he you know, the fit with him can be a little difficult as well because he's someone who's not a particularly good mid-range shooter. He was about 30% for mid-range, I think, last year, and you know has never really been much above that. He's someone who operates best posting up or you know sort of doing straight-line drives from the mid-post uh, on face-ups. And so who do you need to pair with someone like that? Well, ideally, it's someone who can shoot. So now you have a need to pair him with another big man who can stretch the defense on offense and protect the rim on defense. How many of those dudes are out there? There aren't too many Serge Ibaka's out there. So I, I was thinking, I, I think about that a lot in terms of the athletic rim protecting four as being one of the real rarities in the league right now, at least as a starter quality player. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's, it, you know, you've got, 
Brian Andersons who can shoot, and you've got you know Taj Gibsons who can defend the rim. But finding that player together, I mean, that's almost a max contract player himself. Uh, just combining those two skills, which are so rare, and allow you such flexibility in team building. So I agree with you. I mean, if you're gonna pay, I mean, that's the next question is you know how much is he worth a and b how much is he gonna get. But if you're going to pay him, you know, into eight figures on a yearly basis, he's got to be, you know, one of your probably two, maybe three cornerstones. And how high is your ceiling really with Greg Monroe as one of your three cornerstones that you're paying $10 million or more a year to? That's an excellent point. And the other factor, if you're thinking about taking big money versus being on a winning team, is that he faces a little bit of a downside in certain situations because next year's class is so interesting in terms of bigs because obviously I'm not expecting him to go anywhere, but technically Roy Hibbert can be a free agent after next season and Brooke Lopez can as well. And obviously there are injury concerns there, but I would pretty clearly take either one of them in a heartbeat over Monroe because I don't know how much better Monroe is going to get at his weaknesses. And that's a big problem. So what you might be looking at with him is a situation that parallels Al Jefferson in that if what he wants is money, he might end up, even if he wants it per year, he might end up somewhere different. And if he wants it over long term, he might end up in a situation where he's making more money, but in a less than ideal situation in terms of winning. But it's going to show kind of what he wants in that sense, because Detroit is such a strange fit for him because they already have Drummond. And the two of them just demolish floor spacing. Well, I, I can tell you one thing. You posited the, the question of whether he wants money or not. He wants money. <laughs> Doesn't make him a bad guy, but he's coming off of his rookie contract. I mean, we've seen that almost everybody in the NBA will go to where they have the most money. The very few exceptions you'll see are guys who are getting onto their third contract and have, you know, have made into eight figures on their previous contract. You might see someone like Mike Dunleavy take a little less. You'll see guys like LeBron and Wade and Bosch take a little less. You know, and even someone like Al Jefferson took probably whatever what his largest offer was, and he's coming off a I think a five year, sixty five million dollar contract. So Monroe is coming off his rookie deal. I mean, he's probably making like average of two million a year, maybe three. So I certainly expect him and encourage him and think it's entirely understandable that he would get absolutely as much as he could for him and his family. Absolutely. And I won't knock a guy for taking money, especially in his kind of circumstance. And the other factor in that that you bring up, which is which is a totally fair point, is that he's not in a situation where he needs to repair his reputation or anything. I think that the times that you see we saw J.R. Smith and a couple other guys early, like kind of when they were in that knucklehead, like they could be better phase. Good thing J.R. is out of that now. <laughs> well, he got paid a little bit more, so he convinced the team that he was out of it, but and now they're going to have a lot of trouble trading that if they want to. <laughs> but the point remains that if you want to do that as a form of a make good, and I think you could argue that O.J. Mayo did that as well, but Greg Monroe doesn't need that. You know, his... his issue is not that he needs to show what how good a player he is or that he hasn't had the a fair opportunity he's had that and his reputation is fine it's just that the type of player that he is I, it screams to me and this happened in the summer of 2010 and a lot of other ones is that it screams to me of a situation where somebody's going to like him enough to give him the offer and it only takes one team as long as that team is willing to bid against themselves 
All right. For, the Wizards offer Otto Porter for Greg Monroe. I'd say that the Pistons should run with that as far as they can because if if they're in the mindset, and I think they are, that you know they're not going to go that far with this core, then what you have to do is you want to try to get guys for assets because the only way that I think that they would make sense for them to keep Monroe would be if what happened to Josh Smith the first time happened to him, which is that people were so scared by restricted free agency that he just doesn't get offers. And then you could actually, in a way, parallel the guy who they would be pairing him with in Washington in the nay of if you could get him on an undervalued contract, that you sign him with the intention of trading him eventually, but probably in the sooner part of eventually. If I'm the Wizards, I think that I wouldn't give up a guy like Otto Porter for something that isn't a huge benefit as long as you think that the Pistons aren't going to re-sign him because you're giving up an asset, whether or not we agree on how much of an asset Otto Porter is, can do that. What do you think on that? If I were the Pistons, I don't think all that much of, of Otto Porter right now. I may be proven wrong. We haven't seen enough of him in the actual NBA to say, I mean, he essentially is just a rookie, but he was the number three pick in the draft. You would hope that the number three pick in the draft could at least start at small forward for your team, and he you know, has barely been getting minutes. Obviously, he was injured for a long time. He's trying to come back from that. He looked pretty horrible in summer league, but you know that's not the be-all, end-all either, and he also ended up having to retire from summer league with an injury. The stats really liked him. Uh, you know, The statistical translations, like Kevin Pelton really liked him. He had a lot of skills, especially at Georgetown, but on film, he didn't really do all that much to impress me. I mean, I think his jumper is okay. You know, he hit okay on threes his last year at Georgetown, not so much before that. Uh, you know, he doesn't have the greatest form or the greatest or most versatile release on his jumper, uh, and he doesn't have a ton of quickness or strength, so it's hard to really envision how he's going to be a plus scorer much more than just you know, maybe eventually posting up smaller guys and, you know, doing spot up shooting. So his ceiling is probably a solid starter. And, you know, given his actual performance to date, though it's a small sample size, he hasn't shown much at the NBA level to indicate that he's even going to fulfill that ceiling at this point. So it certainly would be a risk acquiring him. I think it's more just that that's about as good as you can expect to do for someone like Monroe, who is going to have to make an eight-figure salary that at least if I were running the Pistons, I wouldn't want to pay. And then getting Monroe out of there and moving Josh Smith to the four, I think their defense could improve mightily. And that they might, although it would look like a tanking move, which is a big reason it probably won't happen because of the optics of that, that they could actually end up improving a reasonable amount this year as a result of that trade. They could, and sometimes the best thing that you can do is take away the possibility of a bad de- bad options or bad decisions for a coach, and <laughs> that might be necessary for Mo Cheeks because he can't quit that three-big lineup all the way yet, and it is not successful. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know what to make of, of him. I mean, you definitely look at their personnel and feel like they should be a lot better on defense than they are. I mean, you see that they have a lot of trouble – with rotation, Zach Lowe at Grantland did a really nice piece on that a couple of weeks ago, highlighting you know just the kind of mistakes they make that NBA defenses really shouldn't be making. But on the other hand, you know this is the roster that Mo Cheeks was given. I mean, he, Josh Smith, and Greg Monroe and Andre Drummond are in theory his three best players, and they got to play. And 
Josh Smith, you know, obviously doesn't hit well from outside, but he's the three man. He's got to take jumpers. Somebody has to. So, I mean, I think a lot of it is the roster construction. But on the other hand, he hasn't done a ton, especially on the defensive end, where they shouldn't have as many problems to show that he is the person to really get the most out of this team. The way that I sympathize is a lot in line with what you said, that they don't also, even more specifically than that, that they're their three best players, it's that they don't have strong options at small forward, just natural small forwards. Kyle Singler's a fine player, but it's not like you could say, hey, he should be starting over Greg Monroe. That's, that's not an argument that I can make with a ton of vigor. And so they have this situation where it makes it easier for the coach because they don't have a guy they can say, okay, we can we can put in this place and then we can use, presumably it would be Monroe that would be the sixth man. And so if you don't make it an easier decision for the coach, then it's a lot harder to justify criticizing Cheeks for that because he doesn't really have that option. It's not like he's playing Kendrick Perkins over Steven Adams. There isn't a Steven Adams. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think singular shooting does help, and they've been at least offensively better with him on the floor, as, as best I recall. But you're right. I mean, they don't have a great three-man on the roster, and you know they haven't since Tayshawn Prince was good. That's been a little while. <laughs> to me, the most interesting free agency move beyond LeBron, and because his importance is obviously there and can't be denied, has to go to Lance Stevenson because not only is he a free agent, but he is an unrestricted free agent, and that has some huge effects both in terms of the Pacers and the rest of the league. Yeah, it's the Pacers are in a bit of a bind. They have about $60 million absolutely firm committed for next year. I think that may go up slightly uh, with Paul George's contract since he, their agreement was that if he meets the Supermax criteria – that he gets 27% at what's known as the 27% max instead of the 25% max. So that may go up a little bit. But So they're looking at, you know, between probably 60 and 62 million committed for next year. They have uh, Luis Skoll at about 4.8 million that is non-guaranteed. So that would put them at 65. Well-known in league circles that they have a pretty massive aversion to paying the luxury tax and even there were rumors that they sort of just have an organizational hard cap just in terms of their profitability, even at a few million below the luxury tax. Assuming the luxury tax goes up another $4 million or so, the same way the cap is projected to next year, that puts it at about $75 million. So that leaves you, if you retain Scola, about $10 million a year to retain Lance. And, you know, obviously you have no other room underneath the uh, tax then to do much in terms of filling out the roster either. So, you know, it's going to be a bit of a crunch. I could easily see Lance getting $10 million, maybe even even more than that. You know, the question of whether he deserves it is, is another one we should talk about. But it's going to be difficult for them. And then, you know, maybe they let Scola go. Then they probably at least could match just about any offer. But then the question becomes, A, you know, what's the opportunity cost of that? Because they're going to go back to having no bench again if they do that. Or, B, you know, is that just a good idea in terms of paying Lance Stevenson that kind of money? The payment issue is really interesting. And the other f- factor in that, we talked about, you know, a guy like Greg Monroe leaving money on the table. Lance Stevenson's a totally a fr- is an even greater case of that because he was a second-round pick. This is a guy who he wasn't making in the 2 to $3 million range. He's been making a million dollars a year. And... 
he is an unrestricted free agent. So all of the concerns about having a depressed market or anything like that for him are not there. And depending on what happens with Rudy Gay, the market for swingmen outside of LeBron James could be very dry, which could work to his advantage. So the big question in some ways is, would Lance be willing to give on something in order to stay? And there are some valid arguments that he cares about that and that he wants to do that, but he might be leaving money on the table. And what I would be scared of if I'm the Pacers is him getting a number in his head from another team, whatever that team is of, you know, if he gets 13 in his head, I'm not saying he deserves that, but if he gets that in his head, that makes it harder for him to take something in the 10 range. Yeah, and this is a, another place where the NBA's kind of weird rules on extensions can lead to teams losing guys. You know, if this were football or baseball, Lance Stevenson and the Pacers probably would have agreed on an extension in the last couple of years that sort of priced in the potential of injury for him or, you know, the potential of regression and still would have been cheap enough that the, for the team to want to do it. But now he's going to become an unrestricted free agent and going to yeah. get some big offers, and it's hard to say that the Pacers are going to be willing and able to match that. Yeah, how much would you pay him right now? Obviously, that's putting you on spot a little bit, but how? what What would you be your general kind of concept of an co- offer that you would make for him? Let's say you're the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a, a lot of that depends on Nikola Mirotic going over. I think Mirotic probably is going to be a better player than Stevenson. And, you know, he also plays a power position and he's going to be a better value contract as well because the Bulls have his draft rights. So they probably will be able to get him for the mid-level exception money, about $5 million a year or so on a minimum three-year deal. So I would certainly try to go that route. Stevenson is not the greatest fit next to Derrick Rose because, you know, the Bulls' perpetual problem has been shooting and Stevenson is really a slightly below average three-point shooter and and he may improve a little bit but he doesn't have the greatest form and 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 release so I'm not sure how much above average he's really ever going to get so he's not the greatest fit but he's also you know a, a secondary playmaker he plays great defense so there are a lot of appeals there I mean I think if we're just going to go in a vacuum of what do we think he's worth you know if you're if you're starting a team from scratch and you're going to have Lance Stevenson on your team you know, what would you be willing to pay him? I mean, I think he's probably an eight or nine million dollar a year player. And, you know, maybe you might overpay a little bit, you know, to go up to 10. I certainly wouldn't go above 10 and really probably wouldn't go above seven or eight, especially because you have to kind of price in his like latent head caseness. Pacers have done a really good job of controlling. And he was, he credited that a lot, even in his comments to the media last night after the game that he you know, help to his teammates and the support system there helps him to avoid getting frustrated. Uh, so, I mean, there's a little bit of a worry that he could regress in that way as well. So I'm thinking, you know, about $8 million would be the most I would pay, but I don't have that much cash. And, and certainly uh, a lot of general managers have sold out a lot of contracts that I didn't agree with. So I would posit that he'll probably get way more than that. The real challenge with a player like Lance is that if you think about, for a, let's say a high-level team, the niches that you need filled to have a go-to score, to have a lead defender, to have ideally a rim protector as well, he does a lot of things well, and he's in a, he can be a good piece on a great team, but he doesn't check any of the big boxes, and that makes him hard as a, to value as a free agent. 
he he's more valuable in the right situation than he is in the wrong situation. And if you're paying him, let's say, $10 million a year, it gets harder to make it the right situation. So that's kind of the idea that's interesting, is that he might actually have more value, absent their luxury tax concerns, to a team like Indiana than he would to almost anybody else. It's really going to be fascinating what happens with him, because this is a relatively unprecedented situation, uh, at least under this CBA, where you have a guy who's going to be completely unrestricted, someone who's really pretty highly valued around the league. So I, I can't wait to see what happens with that. And it will be an interesting prologue for what happens with Chandler Parsons, because while they're very different players, it's this trend unless Houston gets really gutsy and does does a move this summer, which I don't think they're going to do, to see this little move of guys getting to unrestricted free agency so early. And we were talking before about the difference that with Toronto, that if they're going to draft a guy, then you generally get control over them for seven, eight years. But if you draft a guy in the second round and you give him a four-year contract, that's all you're guaranteed. So they're getting out there. You think about a baseball team or even an NBA guy. They're not usually getting into unrestricted free agency in their mid-20s, and that's going to be amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure having you. Likewise. Uh, anytime. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, coming on again. Thanks to Nate Duncan for coming on. Really appreciate him taking the time. You can read him at basketballinsiders.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at NateDuncanMBA. That's N-A-T-E-D-U-N-C-A-N-M-B-A. Also like to thank Ian Levy of Hickory High and Hardwood Paroxysm, as well as Cameron Schott of Real GM for all of them taking the time and hitting a lot of different topics. Really enjoyed talking Eastern Conference, D-League, and things that don't get enough attention. In the next couple weeks, I'm going to be doing a special podcast with a series of guests, more like the year in review, about ways to fix the lottery system and the playoff system. Some guests will hit one, some guests will hit both. Really excited to do that. Still working on the list, have a great group already, so if you have people that you would like to have included, let me know and let them know, and I'm keeping on trying to add new people. And beyond that, thank you so much for listening. Always appreciate your insight. You can email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com and you can also hit me up on twitter at danny larue that's d-a-n-n-y l-e-r-o-u-x thanks take care and make it a great day When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. 